car, and this will be number four. And you might tend to say, how come we spent such a long time on this? Well, one answer might be, I don't know anything more about the Gospel of John. <laughs> but that, uh, may I say, is, it might be true, but it's not. The reason spent so much time in the prologue, for two reasons. Number one, it's so profound. Number two, because the prologue uses certain terms and words that are uh, indispensable, the understanding of which is indispensable for understanding the rest of the Gospel of John. We spent half the class last time on the word faith. That's the key word in the Gospel of John, the word believe. occurs 98 times. So we spent half a lesson on it, so that later on we won't have to spend as much time on it. Now tonight, we're going to study another great doctrine of the Word of God, and that's the doctrine of the Incarnation. And since it's such a critical doctrine, the doctrine which we celebrate every December the 25th, whether or not that's the right date, and it probably is not, yet the event is proper when God became a man. It's so important, that's why we're going to spend this session on John chapter 1, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. Now, John chapter 1, verse 14 belongs with verses 9 through 14. Verse 9 tells us Jesus Christ came. Verse 14 tells us how Jesus Christ came to this world. He came by becoming himself a man. Now let's read verse 14 once again. And the word was made, or better, and the word became, not was made as though a a force outside of Jesus made him that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, there are three statements in that verse, and we want to look at the three of them. First, the Word was made and became flesh. Step number one. That's the incarnation. That's the virgin birth and the birth of Jesus. That's the virgin conception and the birth of Jesus. Second, he dwelt among us. That's his whole life for 33 to 34 years. He dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And then, number three, we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father. Now, let's look at those three statements. Here's perhaps the cl clearest yet the simplest statement on the incarnation. And it's given to us in about five words. And the word became flesh. Now, this is the first time, by the way, that the word is identified as Jesus. Up to now, we read that uh, uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and so on down the line. But we're not told up to this point who the word was. Now, at this point, we find out who it was. It's Jesus. The word was made flesh. That's obviously Jesus. And he says so in verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now by the term word, obviously, he refers to the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the invisible God. The Bible here says the word became flesh. Now what do we mean, what does the Bible mean when he used the word flesh? F-L-E-S-H. Well, the word flesh is used in different ways. Sometimes the word flesh refers to this stuff right here. Fingers, arms, legs, hands, so on down the line. Remember, Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, spirit hath not flesh and bone. So the word flesh there means this stuff. Fingers, legs, arms. And that's usually what we think of it. Uh, uh, think of it and when, we, when we hear that word flesh. Well, that, I would say, is the minimal use of the term flesh in the Bible. Sometimes the word flesh means, secondly, sinful human nature. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, that obviously doesn't mean this stuff. They that are in the flesh. Because if that meant this stuff, fingers, arms, legs, Jesus came in this stuff, that would mean that Jesus couldn't please the Father, couldn't please God. So when it says they that are in the flesh cannot please God, doesn't mean this stuff here, arms and fingers. The word flesh in Romans 8 7 means sinful human nature. 
John chapter 3, there's the same use of it. Look at John chapter 3, verse 6. John chapter 3, verse 6. John 3, 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, when Jesus used that term in John 3, 6, the word flesh, he doesn't mean this stuff here. By the word flesh, he means sinful human nature. That which is born of sinful human nature is sinful human nature. That simply teaches me that my mother and father, my parents, not only gave me my physical makeup, they also gave me my fallen, sinful nature, my spiritual makeup. That which is born of the flesh of sinful human nature is sinful human nature. That's why I need to be born again. And that's the whole point of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. So the word flesh is sometimes used as sinful human nature. Third, the word flesh is sometimes used simply of human nature without, um, without uh, the connotation of being sinful. And that's the meaning of the word in verse 14. And the word was flesh means that the word was a real person. He had a real human nature. Now, what is a person? What makes up a real human nature? What makes up a person? Well, essentially, two things. Two things make up human nature, body and soul. There are two parts to me. A body, there's a material part to me, that's called body. And there's an immaterial part to me, and that's called soul. Now, somebody's going to come up after class, so to anticipate it, so you won't have to come up, see. I think there's a difference between soul and spirit, but it's not a difference of, of parts. I believe there are two parts to a person. A, a material part called the body, and the immaterial part called soul or spirit or mind or heart or conscience. Now, what are spirit, soul, mind, heart, conscience? They are different functions. They're different functions of this immaterial substance which I have. When I die, Ecclesiastes 12, 7, the body, the flesh, goes into the ground. The spirit or soul returns to God. He made it. So there are two parts to me. A body and a soul, or a body and a spirit, or a body and a mind, whatever you want to call it. There's a material part, that's body, that's this stuff, made up of matter, it's the material part. Second, there's an immaterial part, an immaterial part, uh, which is probably, as the old theologian said, coextensive with the body, doesn't reside at the pituitary gland, probably coextensive with the body, there's an immaterial part, an immaterial substance. That's called soul, or it's called spirit, or it's called mind, or it's called conscience, or it's called will, or it's called heart. We ought to call any of those. What will and heart and soul and spirit are, are simply functions, functions, functions of this one immaterial I. So when I choose, this one immaterial part is called will. When I hurt, this one immaterial part is called conscience. When I think, this one immaterial substance is called mind. When I relate to you, this one immaterial part is called soul. And when I relate to God, this one immaterial part is called spirit. And there's one word that embraces all of these in the Bible, and that word is heart. Heart doesn't speak of the emotional part of me. Normally, heart speaks of the whole, the whole of me, immaterial part of me. Will, conscience, mind, soul, spirit, everything. That's heart. My son, keep thine, what? Heart. For out of it are the issues of life. The heart refers to the whole thing. So there are two parts, material part, body, and an immaterial part called soul or spirit or conscience or heart. 
two parts. When I die, the material part goes to the ground, the grave, and my immaterial part, soul, spirit, mind, heart, will, that one, one immaterial thing, one immaterial thing, not made of matter, the real I leaves this world and enters immediately into the presence of God. Now, when it says that the Word became flesh, it means that Jesus took on a real human nature. He took on a real body, and he took on a real soul or spirit or mind or conscience, whatever you want to call it. Whatever belongs to human nature, as human nature, Jesus took on. He didn't take on sinful human nature. He took on human nature as it was prior to the fall. That's why Jesus is called the last Adam. He's not called, by the way, the second Adam. He's called that in some of our hymns. But we don't want to get our theology from our hymns, by the way. He's called the second Adam in our hymns, but he's not called the second Adam in the Bible. He's called the second man, and he's called the last Adam. There are only two Adams, the first Adam and the last Adam. And Jesus was made after the first Adam prior to his fall. And he had a real body that needed to eat, needed to rest, that grew, and he had a real soul or spirit or mind, whichever you want to call it. And that real soul could choose the will, could think, grew, learn, and could emote, could love and hate. So he had a real body and a real soul. When the Bible says the word became flesh, that word flesh means human nature. That the eternal God took on a human nature. Now the Bible says the word became flesh. Became flesh. The contrast, I wouldn't draw that long a line, but the contrast goes back to verse 1. Look at verse 1. See, it says, what is the word, what is the verb repeated three times in verse 1? Now, look in your Bible. What is it? What? What is the last statement? And the word, not became, but was. The word was God. Now, connect that with verse 14. What's the first verb in verse 14? Now, became, not was made, became. See, that ought not to be was. The Greek verb is genomai, which means to become. And the word was God, but the word became flesh. Time became flesh. Now, this is called the incarnation. The incarnation. And by the way, that's without being technical, that's in the aorist tense in chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh. That means at a certain period of time, the word of the word, the second member of the Trinity, took on a real human nature. And he took it on not by laying aside his deity, and he took it on not by submerging his human nature and his divine nature, he took it on by joining to his divine person a real human nature. I like to illustrate this way. Well, I don't like to make that confusing. Just one circle. Jesus Christ is one person. One person. But he possesses two perfect natures. Two perfect natures. He possesses a human nature, and therefore what we would call him a man. He possesses also a divine nature, and therefore he is what? God. Now, the verb, what is the verb that goes on this side? What was that verb? Was. What is the verb that came over here? Became, not was made, but became. See, became in time. So Jesus Christ is perfect God and perfect man. He's one person, not two persons. Jesus Christ joined to his divine person a human nature. He did not join to his divine person a human person. He joined to his divine person a human nature. So Jesus possesses two natures. 
a perfect divine nature and a perfect human nature, and he possesses them, uh, he possesses them, one and the same time in one person. And when we state four facts, we got all that the Bible teaches us, and all the historic creeds teach us about Jesus. First, Jesus Christ is perfect God. Whatever we can say of God, we can say of Jesus. Second, Jesus Christ is perfect man. Whatever we can say of man is man. Not man is sinner, but man is man, we can say of Jesus. What can we say of man? A man grows, so does Jesus. A man hungers, so does Jesus. Man sleeps, so did Jesus. A man learns, so did Jesus. The Bible says in Luke 2.40 that Jesus Christ grew in strength and in wisdom. He learned. So Jesus is a perfect man. Number three, although he has two natures, number three, he is but one person. Not two persons, one. The same person, did Jesus go around saying, uh, uh, we and the Father one? Did he go around saying we or I? I, just one person, I. I am the Father one. I say to you, verily, verily, I say unto thee. He didn't say verily, verily, we say unto thee. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. He's one person. One person. The same person who said before Abraham was, I am all said, I thirst. As God, he said before Abraham was, I am. That's God speaking. I thirst, that's man speaking. But he's just one person. Now there's one other thing we had to add to that, kind of a technical thing, and that is that the qualities, the attributes that belong to this nature don't transfer over to this nature. And the qualities or attributes that belong to this nature don't transfer to this nature. What qualities belong to this nature? Omniscience. In his divine nature, Jesus knew everything. But although in his divine nature he knew everything, he didn't use that in order to inform his human nature. He had to learn. You remember, the devil tried to get him to do that one time. Jesus was hungry. What did the devil say? You're hungry? Turn those stones into bread. He said, no, I'm not going to transfer my attributes. And he didn't. And that's what that verse means. says, neither no man knows that hour, not even the Son of Man. The liberals use that. They say that Jesus left his omniscience in heaven. No, he didn't. He was speaking in his human nature at that point. In his divine nature, he knew the hour of his coming. But in his human nature, he didn't. And he knew it and didn't know it at one and the same time. When he sat down and learned that 12 times 12 is 144, while he was learning that, at the same moment he knew it in his divine nature. Now that's a mystery. And that's what Paul says. Great is the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifests in the flesh. It's a mystery. How could Jesus both know and not know at the same time? That's a mystery. I don't know, but he did. You say, why that? See, this idea that this attributes transfer over to this human nature, that the attribute of omnipresence, the attribute of omnipresence that belongs to his divine nature, transfers to his human nature. That idea is at the basis of the Catholic dogma of the Mass and the Lutheran dogma of consubstantiation. That's based on the idea that the attribute of omnipresence, which belongs to his divine nature, transfers to his human nature. Martin Luther and John Calvin, in other words, divided on this point, as they did another point. And normally, Protestants do not believe that the attributes transfer. So, four things. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Jesus is 
one person. And number four, the attributes that belong to one do not transfer to the other nature. Jesus Christ is the God-man. Now, the three questions that come up, let me answer two of them. First question is this. How did Jesus Christ become a man? What method did he use? What was the M.O. of the incarnation? By what method did he become a man? What is the answer to that? Right, the virgin birth. The answer is the virgin birth. He became a man. He entered the human race by means of the virgin birth. That's the method by which Jesus became a man, by the method of the virgin birth. Now, the virgin birth, by the way, doesn't refer to the birth of Jesus. It refers to the conception of Jesus. The birth of Jesus was a normal birth. He was born just as you and I are born. He was conceived supernaturally. It's a conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's a miracle. Matter of fact, sometimes at Christmas time, I preach on the virgin birth. Man says that's a miracle. No, it's not a miracle. It's three miracles. First miracle is that a virgin could conceive that when we speak of the virgin birth, we mean that the human nature of Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit without the aid of man. Three miracles. Number one, the virgin conception. That's a miracle. Number two, in the hour of conception, in the hour of conception, the human nature of Jesus was preserved from the taint, the pollution of original sin. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David didn't mean my mother was an adulteress when she conceived. David meant when he said, in sin did my mother conceive me, he meant by that, that my mother in the hour of conception gave to me a sinful human nature. And by the way, uh, in respect to abortion, when does the human nature begin? The hour of conception. Sin did my mother conceive me, not give birth, but conceive me. And the hour of conception, the Holy Spirit preserved the human nature of Jesus from the taint, the corruption, the pollution of original sin. That's why the angel said in Luke chapter 1, 33 and 34, that holy thing, referring to the human nature of Jesus, that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The third great miracle, and the greatest of all, is that in the hour of conception, nine months before his birth, in the hour of conception, uh, in the hour of conception, Jesus Christ, in the hour of conception, joined those two natures together. When did Jesus Christ Take on a human nature. At birth, no. Six months pregnancy, no. In the hour of conception, see? I like to say it this way. For nine months, while Mary carried Jesus, Jesus carried Mary, see? What does the Bible tell us? We, we studied the first week. What is the Bible? We studied the first week. We read over in Colossians that one of the things that Jesus does, all things are created by him, and by him all things consist, stick together. And that's present tense. And my friend, when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he never gave that responsibility up. He never delegated that responsibility to the Father, to the Holy Spirit. All the while Jesus was on earth, he was still sustained in this universe. And while Mary was carrying Jesus in her womb, he was still sustaining this universe. And the hour of conception, those two natures were joined together. And the method by which he became uh, man was by the means of the virgin birth. Now, in theology, that's called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic. You want me to spell that? 
Hypostatic is H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C. Hypostatic. And the word hypostatic simply means personal. Hypostatic means personal. That the union of these two natures was a personal union. Now you see this chair, it has some things united to it. That chair has these, these legs are united to the seat. And the screws are united to the seat. But that's a mechanical union. Mechanical union. Now the union of my soul and my body is a personal union. It's a union that constitutes me a person. And there's an interaction between my soul and my body. So we seek today of psychosomatic medicine. Psycho is sukkah, soul. Soma is the Greek word for body. And psychosomatic medicine is that medicine, that medical area of doctors who deal with the effect of the soul on the body and the effect of the body on the soul. Psychosomatic. And that's, that's possible because the union of the soul and the body is a personal union. Constitutes me a person. Now, when Jesus Christ joined a human nature to his divine person, that wasn't a mechanical union like a chair. It was a personal union. It constituted him a person, a hypostatic union. Now, there are many passages that teach that. I don't have time to look at them. We don't have time to look at them because we want to get through verse 18. <laughs> so we're not going to look at them. But I'll give you a couple of them, and we'll look at one of them. I'll give you them if you want them. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6. 1 Timothy 3, 16. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Galatians 4, 4. Now, I hope you're not writing Galatians all out. G-A-L period. See, you don't have to write them all out. And 1 Timothy, just one, just a one in T-I-M. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Isaiah 9, 6. I-S period. Isaiah 9, 6. 1 John 4, 2. 1 John 4, 2. 2 John 7. 2 John 7. And Romans 1, 3 and 4. Romans 1, 3 and 4. Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is what? Born. And unto us a son is and the Holy Spirit used those verbs very precisely. He didn't say unto us a child is given and unto us a son is born, because had he done that, that had been wrong. The child was born, began in time. The son was given. The son is eternal. He wasn't born. Now I want to look at two of them. Romans chapter 1. Let's go over there quickly, please. I taped the radio broadcast of Romans 1, 3 and 4, just recently. I've been given nine weeks radio time on WAMQM and uh, daily four minutes a day and 15 minutes on Saturday. And I taped the broadcast for WMQM on this passage, Romans 1, 3, and 4. Here's a great statement. Now let's begin at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Verse 2 is apprentice. The gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. One person concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's his human nature. And demonstrated the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. That's his divine nature. Now, if you, there are two verbs there. The verb in verse 3 is made. And the verb in verse 4 is declared. And I would circle those two words, verbs, and draw a line through them. And if you got those two verbs, you have the Christ of the Bible. If you don't, then you're in danger of having another Christ and another gospel. What are those two verbs? Made. Made. The word made is, is born. Read. Born. Born of the seed of David was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's his human nature. 
And the word declared is demonstrated. The Greek word is dia horizo, horizo. What English word do we get from that? Horizo. Horizon. Horizon. And the resurrection put Jesus out on the horizon as God's son. See, all his life he lived under a shadow. His enemies said he's not the son of God. Even his disciples had questions about it. But the resurrection put him out clearly on the horizon. That's what this word is. And declared or demonstrated the son of God. Born, made, the seed of David, that's his human nature. Demonstrated the Son of God, that's his divine nature. Look at 2 John, it's so close to it. Uh, you might as well look at 1 John chapter 4. Now, some of you still need to learn the books of the Bible, don't you? 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits, where they of God, because many false prophets are gone out in the world. By this, <clears throat> by this, Know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that denies the incarnation that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, but that's the spirit of who? What is it he denies? The incarnation. Look here, that Jesus... That's the word, that's God, is come in the, that's man. That's the incarnation. And a man that denies the incarnation is of the spirit of Antichrist. A man that denies the incarnation, that Jesus Christ is God, cannot be a Christian. Look at 2 John. 2 John, the next book, verse 7. 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers are entered in the world who confess not that Jesus Christ cometh in the flesh. There's the incarnation. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, what are you to do with a man that comes along and says that Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh, that Jesus Christ is God? What are you going to do to a man that says that Jesus is not God incarnate? Well, I'll show you what he tells us to do. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> Whosoever transgresseth and abides not in the doctrine of Christ, that is, that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, that is, that Jesus is God come in the flesh, he has both the Father and the Son. Now, if there come any unto you, knock on your door, try to sell you their literature. If there come any to you, and bring not this doctrine. Now look here, what he says to do. Receive him not in your house, neither bid him good speed. For he that biddeth him God speed is partaker of his evil deeds. He tells us not to do things, two things. One, don't invite him in your house. Now in those days, a traveling preacher was invited to home, and he might stay for three days. And they gave him his food and his lodging. When he says don't invite him in your home, what he means is, don't support him. Don't support him. Don't send him any money. Don't support him. So you better look at the colleges and universities which you're supporting with your money. Don't support any, he says, that deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And then he says, secondly, don't bid him Godspeed. What does that mean? Don't pray for him. Now, he prayed that he get converted. But don't pray for God's blessing upon his ministry because it's a ministry of heresy. man came to our door one time a few years ago and um, tried to sell. I wasn't there. My wife went to the door, and I could hear the temple of the argument. It was rising a little, and I knew that he was trying to sell us some literature. And she was witnessing to him and talking to him. So, unfortunately, I barged out there after about 15 minutes I couldn't restrain myself, and I went out there and got in on it also. There were two men, two men. Now, you know the old system of saying conquer and divide. That's the way to handle them, you know, conquer and divide. One of them was a young, one of them was old. I could tell the pro. He was hard, brittle, authoritarian. The other one was a guy that he was trying to break in. He was young and courteous. 
So I said to the young fellow, I said, I want to commend you on your courtesy. I said, you're so courteous and kind and careful and discreet. And I said to the other man, I said, you know, it would be lovely if you could, you know, while he's learning from you, you could learn a little from him on courtesy. Well, this guy over here, he didn't know whether to thank me or not. See, that put him in a bind. So after a while, about a half hour, they knew they weren't getting any, weren't going to sell anything. So they got ready to leave. My wife said, well, let's pray. The older man, now the young one, brought him. The older man said, no, no, we can't pray. I said, you're absolutely right, because we don't pray to the same God. I pray to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you deny that Jesus is God. And the Bible says that last verse, he that denieth Jesus, what does it say? Second John, verse 11, verse, the end of verse, verse uh, 9, he that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. What did Jesus say in John 5? If any man denies me, the Son, also denies the Father. See? That's why you can't pray. I hope I don't come across hard here. But that's why you can't join a prayer meeting with a Unitarian. See? We had an article about one last Saturday newspaper. And they certainly have a right to the newspaper. I'm not proclaiming that. They certainly have a right. The editor of the Memphis, uh, the, uh, you know, the press seminar years ago was a Unitarian. They certainly have a right. They have a right. I'm not discounting that. We believe in religious liberty in America. But what I am saying is that... Uh, that although we can join with other Christians, whether they're premillennial or postmillennial in some respects. Now, we have a doctrinal statement in Mid-South Bible College. We're premillennial. But as far as an evangelistic effort, as far as praying together, if they're brothers, if they've trusted Jesus as God and Savior, then we can join hearts with them. See? But if a man denies that Jesus is God, then we cannot. He says, don't do two things. Don't support him. You better watch where you put your money. And don't bid him God's feet. Don't pray for him unless you pray for the salvation of your soul. What is the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith? What do you think it is? Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's the critical doctrine that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. And a man can be wrong in some things. He can be wrong in the millennium. And he can be wrong in other things. He can even be wrong in the inspiration. There are men today that, that don't believe in the verbal inspiration of the Scripture. They call themselves evangelicals. Are they saved? Well, if they trusted Christ as Savior, as God and Savior, yes, even though they're wrong, yes. Man can even be hold vague theories about the death of Jesus. Mr. C.S. Lewis, who died, by the way, when John Kennedy died, but they restrained the news for four days from getting to America. They didn't want to eclipse the death of John Kennedy. C.S. Lewis was a Christian, but he said, I've never formed any solid opinion on any theory of the atonement. He wouldn't commit himself. Man can be wrong in a number of things, but he cannot be wrong here. Man that denies that Jesus Christ is God. I say it, say it sorrowfully, say it dogmatically, say it biblically. That man cannot be a Christian because he denies the heart of the gospel. And that heart is that Jesus is God. All right, back to John 1.14. John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us like the tabernacle in the Old Testament. We beheld his glory. And the glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I wished I had time, but I don't. To expand on this term glory, there are three kinds of glory when it comes to Jesus' glory. His essential glory, that is, his glory is God. 
Secondly, his moral glory. That is the qualities of his human nature. Gentleness, kindness, patience. And third, his acquired glory. The glory that he earned by his redemptive work upon the cross. Now, they're all touched upon in John 17, and you can read that look at that. All right, let's go to verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. I'm going to have to take these quickly because I want to finish these. We come to point four in the prologue. Number four. The world's surpassing excellence. Chapter 1, 15 to 18. The world's surpassing excellence. He's superior in four ways. Superior to John the Baptist. That's verse 15. In verse 16, he's superior to all others in meeting human needs. That's verse 16. Number three, he's superior to Moses. And that's verse 17. And then finally, he's superior. Matter of fact, he's unique in revealing God. Those four superiority. The words surpassing excellence. That's the title. Jesus is the Word of God. Here's the surpassing excellence of the Word of God. Superior to John the Baptist, verse 15. Superior in meeting human needs, verse 16. Superior to Moses, verse 17. That's verse 17, pardon me. And superior in revealing God, that's verse 18. And as a matter of fact, we have four verdicts here. Four verdicts. First, the verdict of John the Baptist. Second, the verdict of believers. Third, the verdict of Moses. And fourth, the verdict of God himself. Now, let's read and comment on these verses quickly. Superior excellence, the surpassing superior excellence of, uh, of the word of God, of Jesus. First of all, he's superior to John the Baptist. Let's read verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried. And the word bore witness is in the present tense. John keeps on bearing witness right in the 20th century. John keeps on bearing witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He that cometh after me in time is preferred or has become before me in importance, for he was before me in time. Now, let me read that again. That's a little, uh, you know, just in the, a little hard to see that in the King James. Let me read that again. Read and interpret a little. He that cometh after me. Jesus came six months after John. He that cometh after me in time is preferred before me, superior in importance, has become before me. Third, for he was before me. That is in time. So he says two things, John does. He's preferred before me. That's first in importance. And he was before me. That's in time. Was Jesus before John or John before Jesus? Which now? Come on. Both. Right. Somebody said both. That's right. Both. John was before Jesus, as far as his human nature is concerned. John was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, six, in, in the womb of Elizabeth, six months before Jesus. So John was six months older than Jesus. But in his divine nature, Jesus was preexistent. So Jesus was before John. That's what he means at the end. That's what he means at the end of verse 15. He is before me, for he was before me in time. But when he says he's preferred before me, he's talking there not about time, but about importance. In other words, John said for six months, eight months, nine months, I held front and center. 
I held front and center. The attention of all the Jews was focused on me. Then one day, my cousin came to me. I didn't know who he was. I knew it was my cousin, but I didn't know who he really was. I knew there was something strange about him. I knew there was something unique about him. I never heard him use a cuss word. I never heard him say anything if he hit his thumb, though I don't think he hit his thumb. I never saw anything amiss in him, nothing. And I had strange questions about him. One day he came to me at the river, and uh, I was baptizing. It was a baptism to repent. When men came, they repented of their sins. They acknowledged their sins, said they were looking for the kingdom. So I baptized them. And this one, my cousin Jesus, came and said, I want to be baptized. And I said, why, you need to baptize me, not I you. And my cousin said to me, Permit it now. Permit it now. For thus it becomes us, thus it's fitting to us, fitting to us to fulfill all righteousness. All pious Jews are coming to you to be baptized, to indicate repentance and their desire for the coming kingdom. So I, born under the law, under the authority of God, I come to you to be baptized, not to repent of sin, but to indicate my anticipation of the kingdom. So John said, I relented. I baptized him. The father said to me, one day when you're baptizing, the father said to me, one day when you're baptizing, you'll baptize somebody. And immediately after you baptize him, you'll see a dove come out of heaven and descend upon him and stay there. And you will know that that one is the Son of God. You will know that that is the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that next week. So said John, one day I was baptizing. My cousin came to me. I baptized him. When he came up out of the water, when he came up out of the water, a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And at the same time, a dove descended from heaven and abode upon him. And I knew then that that was the Son of God. And that I began to fade out of the picture. See? He must increase, I must decrease. He's now become not only first in time, but first in importance. There's the verdict of John. Number two, the second verdict. The verdict of believers, verse 16. The verdict of believers, verse 16. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. That's the verdict of the man that wrote this gospel. That's the verdict of Peter. That's the verdict of the early church. That's the verdict of believers. If you're a Christian, that's your verdict also. Of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. Now look here. He says two things. First, of his fullness have we all received. Of his fullness of what? Well, whatever you need. Of his fullness of peace, Pardon, joy, long-suffering, strength to overcome sin, salvation, pardon, redemption from a guilty conscience of his fullness, infinite fullness, infinite fullness. We've all received. It's the same word that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 2, 9 and 10. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are, and the King James says, and you are made complete, it ought to be, and you are made full. It's the same word. One's a noun, the other's the verb. And you are made full in him. And of his fullness have we all received. And that word received, by the way, can I be technical? Is in the present tense, uh, eros tense which means, which points to a certain event. At conversion, I received it all. Now, I may not tap it all, but I received it all. Then he says, grace for grace. Now, what does he mean, grace for word? The word is grace in the place of grace. That is, um, a testing comes along life, 
And God gives me the grace to meet that testing. And I use that supply of grace up. And then God gives me another supply of grace. Grace in the place of grace. As one supply of grace is used up, God gives me another supply of grace. As that's used up, God gives me another supply of grace. How much manna did God give to Israel in the Old Testament? Enough for 20 days or 30 days or how much? One day at a time. One day at a time. When that was used up, God gave him the next day. When that was used up, God gave him the next day. I heard Dr. Criswell, pastor of the First Baptist Church, when he first went to First Baptist Church, I was in Dallas at the time, and Dr. Truett had died, and they called, they looked carefully at two men. And they called one of them. One man they looked at very carefully was a Memphian. And the other man was from Oklahoma. And they chose the man from Oklahoma, Dr. Criswell. And I heard him preach his first year there. Went a couple of times. I wasn't preaching out in the country at the time. I heard him preach. I heard him say something I'll never forget. It was this. God never gives us dying grace until we're facing death. God never gives us dying grace until we're facing death. God doesn't give us grace ahead of time. He doesn't give us grace ahead of time. But when I come into the test, then God gives me the grace to meet the test. Grace in the place of grace. When I use that supply, then God gives me the next supply. Do I have the grace of God to meet the certain temptation right now? No. Do I have the grace of God to face death right now? No, because I'm not dying. But when I come down there and get into the valley of the shadow of death, then God will give me the grace to meet the testing and trial in that hour. Grace in the place of grace. The verdict of believers. Third, the verdict of Moses. The verdict of Moses. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean here? Well, I intended to spend about 15 minutes, but I'm not. I'm going to spend about two minutes. What does he mean here? Now, will you look here? What John is doing, the writer of this gospel, is drawing a contrast. He's drawing a contrast between Moses and Jesus. The law came by Moses. The law was given by Moses didn't come by him, it was given by him. But grace and truth came by, was embodied in Jesus Christ. Now, what's the contrast? Well, the contrast lies in the two economies. The economy of Moses is the economy of the law. Why did God give the law to Israel? And by the way, God did not give the Mosaic law to the Gentiles. I'm not under the Mosaic law. I'm under the law of Jesus Christ. God gave the Mosaic law to Israel. Why? Three reasons. Number one, the law revealed the perfect character of God. Number two, the law condemned the man. It slew him. Do you know what the law is called in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? It's called a ministration of death. The law was not intended to give life. It was intended to kill a man bring him to realization of his sinfulness and to slay him. When once an Israelite, when once a Jew had trusted the Lord as his Savior, then the Mosaic law was the rule of life for the believing Israelite in the land of Palestine. So the three purposes in law, to reveal the perfect character of God, to condemn and slay a man and bring him to Jesus. Galatians 3, 2 Corinthians 3. And third, to serve as the rule of life for the believing Israelite in the land of Palestine. Now, John is thinking of that second one. The law was given by Moses. What did the law do? It killed a man. Killed a man. It slew him. Slew him. Didn't give him life. What does the Bible say in Romans 3.20? For by the straight edge of the law is the knowledge of sin. 
The law was intended to kill a man, not to give him life. The law couldn't give life. The law, you go home, you know, after work, and you go, you're getting ready to go out someplace, you go to the bathroom there, and there's a mirror and a wash basin. And you look in the mirror, and you see the dirt in your face and the dirt on your hands. But the dirt on your face, there's smudges on the face. You've been hard at work. But you don't stick your face up against the mirror and rub it against the mirror to get the dirt out. You run some water into the basin and take a rag, wash rag, and wash off the dirt. Or just stick your face down in it, whichever you may do, see? Uh, whatever your system is. And I hope your system is to do something like that. But anyway, the mirror, all the mirror did was reveal that dirt. It revealed the dirt didn't do anything to help it, it revealed it. You got the water to cleanse it. So the law, perfect, perfect, was perfect. Showed me my sin, and then I had to turn to the basin of the blood of Christ to get cleansing. The law is like a great diagnostic machine. The law is an x-ray. The doctor doesn't use the x-ray machine to cure a man. The doctor uses the x-ray machine to see what's wrong. And then he uses something else to cure a man. The law was God's x-ray machine. And by the law is an ong of sin. And the law, instead of giving me life, kills me. It slays me. It's called a ministration of death written in tables of stone. The Ten Commandments. They killed me. Then I turned to Jesus to be saved from my sin. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Then finally, verse 18, the verdict of God himself. He's superior to Moses by supplying grace and truth instead of the law. And finally, number four, he's superior as the only final and complete revelation of God. John 1.18, this is the verdict of God himself. Let's read it, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now let's look at two things, we'll be through. No man has seen God at any time. Now, what he's referring to is no man has seen God in his essence at any time. Now we have in the Old Testament theophanies, don't we? God appeared as an angel. God appeared as a burning bush. Joshua chapter 5, God appeared as that great soldier. But in all of these appearances, God veiled himself. Nobody has seen God unveiled. Nobody's seen God in his essential being. That God said, man couldn't see me and live. Man couldn't see me in his essential being and live. No man has seen God at any time. But one day, God came to us in Jesus Christ. And when he came to us, we saw God. We saw God in Jesus. Or should I say we see God in Jesus? No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who was in the bosom, speaks of closeness and affection, who was in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared it. Now listen. We'll be through. The word declare, the Greek word is ex-ago. Ex-ago. Exogel. We get an English word from exogel. We get the word exegete. To exegete a text means to lead out of the text what is there. Ogel means to lead, and ex means out. Over the door, there you've got the word exit. See? Now I'm getting you to turn and look at that instead of looking at the clock. <laughs> you got the word ex. That comes from the Greek word ex. Ex. Exit is out. X means out. Ago means lead. And Jesus led God out into the open so he could see it. See, nobody really knew what God was like. Nobody ever seen God. Moses told us what he was like. Joshua told us what he was like. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Isaiah told us what God is like. But you know, hearing what God is like 
and seeing God are two different things, aren't they? Just like a man, you know, he might, you know, there's a whale of a lot of difference between a man corresponding with a young lady and wooing her by photograph. And for, I have a good friend that won his wife that way. See, by, by correspondence and by sending pictures. The only thing is he sent the wrong picture. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> he corresponded with her and he won her heart that way. At least he won her yes. I don't know whether he won her heart or not. Won her yes. And he corresponded. There's a lot of difference between that and sending some pictures, which can all be fixed up a little. And then one day, you see the person for the first time himself. So God, in the Old Testament, told us what he was like. Irrigation. He sent us little photographs of the Passover lamb so we could see what he's like, see. But those are only photographs. One day, God himself came. God came in Jesus. So when I see Jesus, I see God. When I see the patience of Jesus, I see the patience of God. When I see the love of Jesus, I see the love of God. When I see the anger of Jesus in the temple, I see the anger of God. When I see the long-suffering of Jesus weeping, 